Today's guest is Susanna Fear, the Vice President of Public Affairs and Marketing for the Elliott Health System in Manchester, New Hampshire. Susanna made a mid-career transition from law to healthcare. Prior to coming to the Elliott, she worked as an attorney specializing in civil litigation, arguing cases all the way to the state Supreme Court. In this podcast, we talk about how she became a lawyer, what it was like to represent clients in court, and then how her prior experience helps her do her job today as a member of the senior leadership team in the Elliott Health System. Susanna explains how she manages communications, both internally and externally, her relationship with the press, and how she prepares members of her organization to interact with the press themselves. Susanna and I had a lengthy conversation, and I think I probably laughed more in this interview than in any other, so I have produced two versions of this podcast, an abridged version and an extended version. You're listening to the abridged version. If you would like to listen to the extended version, please check our website for the link. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, I'm excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening, and here is Susanna Fear. Welcome to The Forge, Susanna. Thank you. So what is the Mary and John Elliott Charitable Foundation? It is the fundraising arm of Elliott Health System. Okay. And Elliott Health System, most people know as Elliott Hospital, but that's it. They fundraise for the Elliott and only the Elliott. And, and so it's a, is it a separate organization from the Elliott? It and is, how separate? Yeah, how? it is. A, it's a separate 501c3, but it literally is a pass-through. So okay. 100% of the funds donated are given to Elliott. Okay. and serve to, you know, support pediatrics and cancer care and all these wonderful things. You mentioned you had some exp- some exposure to healthcare because your mom was a pharmacist yeah. and your dad was a pediatrician. So had you been involved in any other kind of healthcare delivery up to that point? Um, no, I you know, I no, I haven't. I okay. hadn't my, we were in a, I felt like it because we grew up in a house office combination and the patients were physically, oh, really? okay. <laughs> were physically at our house, <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> but no. <laughs> and had you had development experience other than critiquing your mom and telling her she wasn't going to get any money? I had, my experience was through my volunteerism as a lawyer with the American Heart Association. Okay. So I was on their board and I had chaired the heart walk and different things like that. I mean, I, I, Fundraising came naturally to me as as well, so it, it just wasn't hard for me to ask people for money because if you're passionate about what you're doing yeah. and the charity that you're asking for, it just seems like it's easy. And I understand that people really ha- have a problem with it. Some people don't feel like they could ask you for money. But if I believe in the American Heart Association, for example, or I believe in Elliott Health System and the great work they do for people with issues in cancer or behavioral health matters, whatever the case is, why can't I say, here's what I believe in. Mark, join me. I would love you to support this cause. And here's the great things that are going to happen with the funds that you donate. I don't have a problem with that. Easy. <laughs> so what was, uh, what was the learning curve like moving into the new role? It, the learning curve was more around what you touched on before, that healthcare because it was so, I mean, Elliot's huge. Yeah. So I had so much to learn in terms of that organization and all that they offer for the community. But once I 
kind of had that figured out. Then the real challenge was understanding who's my audience. So who are the donors out there who would be interested in all of this incredible work that's being done for the people of Southern New Hampshire? And because that was, because I didn't live in Manchester and I lived in Concord, that, you know, it's not that far away. It's far enough that you really have to understand the community in Manchester. I worked hard to get to know some of the shakers and movers who could introduce me to those people who would then become donors. So it took a little bit of time for me to develop all that. Why do people become donors? I mean, I'm assuming you're not talking about, I'll give you five bucks. It's, it's, it's not, you know. It's both though. I mean, it, so it is, the five bucks is, you know, the annual appeal that you go out to all the staff and say, hey, you know, we work in a charitable organization. We should believe in our organization and we should show it by joining this campaign. And then I'm going to go out to the community and I'm going to tell them that we believe in it and we've already raised this much and ask them to join us with a gift. I typically like to ask for, at the time, I'd like to go to someone and have some knowledge about their background and who they are and make an ask that was reasonable for them. So I may sit down and have lunch with you and after you've cultivated a relationship over time, not the first time you meet them, obviously, but I may say, I'd really like you to consider a $10,000 gift to support the cancer center. And here's what we're thinking about with that $10,000. We want to name such and such, or we want to buy this piece of equipment and make it meaningful for you. But hopefully at the point at which I'm asking, I've already gotten to know you. I know where your interests lie. I know that you care about Elliot or that you have a dad who died of cancer. And so that's, a, you know, something that's important to you. You, you get it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What were your duties? as the vice president for the foundation. Oh. You know, what's <laughs> everything? I mean aside from having lunch and asking for money, <laughs> what everything? Okay. Um let's see. How big was the staff that was working with you or for you? So when I got there, let's see. We had well we had a board. So okay. and there there is continues to be a board to okay. this day. So you report to the board and the board are volunteers from the community, so they have other jobs and but they oversee the work of the foundation and they really a helpful group of people because they're guiding some of what you're doing. But I had oversight of the budget. I was responsible for setting up the campaigns, everything from events, you know, and events are a lot of work. You don't raise as much money. You put a ton of time into creating them and they're, they're wonderful. Like all the golf tournaments you see out there, they're a lot of work and they end up being really wonderful social days. Not all golf tournaments are huge fundraisers, but, you know, events matter. And why do they matter then? So well, they're not raising a lot well, of money. Why well, do they matter? Because, so for me at Elliott, when, when we would hold the golf tournaments, it gave me an opportunity to get the senior leaders of the organization, some of the doctors out of the hospital onto the golf course where they could press the flesh with some of the donors that I wanted, I wanted them to meet. And getting them out to sit down and have a sandwich wasn't going to work. But getting them on the golf course for a day of fun and pressing the flesh worked. So, you know, and, and why, when I say it works, because people want to know who these folks are that they're donating to, who's running the organization, who are the doctors taking care of my 
child or my mother or whomever. And, and it helps them sort of believe a little bit more in what the cause is. You put faces to, to an organization and I, I think it changes things. You know, we're not bricks and mortar. We're sitting here at UNH. It's a beautiful school. But when you get to know people and you believe in people, you typically will consider giving to them. At least that's how yeah. I approached it. And it works. So they, so the, now the donors have, they've paid in whatever the fee is to play, but that's not really what you're after. You're after trying to create that relationship so that when you go back to them and say, donate 10,000, because you've met Dr. Jones and you know what he does. and It has, it has the dual role. Okay. I mean, you're going to fundraise. You're fundraising that day. You've got uh -huh. sponsors and all that okay. stuff. So at the end of the day, have you made money? Yes. And yeah. it's very important. Yeah. But has something else happened during the day Hopefully, that yeah. leads to cultivation of the relationship in a in a in a way that wouldn't happen without some of that time together that's what's also very important i see, I see. so you mentioned your board mm -hmm. and this is a board that's different than the board for the hospital correct or for the health system yes okay so how does someone become to be on the foundation board the board was in place when i arrived and i recall i recall that they actually would go through a selection process of various people in the community and invite them to be on the board. But I don't recall, it's funny you asked that, I don't recall being personally involved. In other words, I didn't have, I don't think I had a vote. I could certainly bring them names, but they decided what kind of criteria the did they use to fill those seats? Do you do you recall? I don't recall. I'm sorry. I mm, honestly okay. don't. But um, I'm sure that it has to do with who can bring other donors to the table, who knows who, who can open certain doors. I mean, that's how it works in fundraising. Okay. You don't want someone sitting on your board who isn't willing to, A, donate themselves, B, open doors to other resources, people with money, and I shouldn't say it that way, of means, and, you know, just find opportunities that wouldn't otherwise exist. So the this board is focused on fundraising only because this is the foundation mm -hmm. as opposed to the board of the health system would be focused on operations financials everything okay yeah so you were in this role until 2006 so you were you were in the role of of vice president for the the, the foundation till 2006, but in 2004, you also started working as the vice president of public affairs and marketing for the Elliott Health System. Yes. You've kind of talked about that a little bit, but I, I just want to back up a second. And, and can you tell us a little bit about the Elliott Health System, just so we get a sense of how big is it? What does it do? Yeah. Um, Elliott Health System is a healthcare provider in southern New Hampshire with Elliott Hospital a visiting nurse association, the foundation, a for-profit one-day surgery center, and an expansive primary care practice throughout southern New Hampshire as well as uh, specialists throughout southern New Hampshire. We have many ambulatory care sites, so those are buildings where you walk in, you receive care, and you go home. At the end of the day, there are no hospital beds in those buildings, so the Elliott at River's Edge is a great example where there's urgent care and there's orthopedics and that you can get an x-ray or an MRI, but it's 
it's a outpatient facility. And for Elliott now, two thirds of our revenue comes from outpatient care, not inpatient care at the hospital. Because people don't want to go to a hospital unless you're really sick. You want to receive your health care in a place that is a beautiful environment where you can get in, get out, park, and you have a great patient experience. So that's where Elliott Health System is going. And it's, I know we're a leader in southern New Hampshire in, in this area. And it's an enormous organization. It's probably a $500 million organization with hundreds. How many doctors do we have? Probably like 300 doctors. And we continue to grow. So it's a pretty exciting place to be. So you were dual-hatted, working both for the system and the foundation. Correct. How did that come about? So how did it come that you were both still raising money and now you were also the... You were also a vice president for the health system now, doing the public affairs and marketing role. We lost our director of marketing. I don't recall that there was a VP. There was a director. And my president and CEO called me into his office and he said, Suzanne, I want you to take over marketing as well. And I said, absolutely not. Nice talking to you. See you later. (laughs) (laughs) And we had that exact conversation four times. I refused. And he would bring me back and ask me again. He was being very nice about it. And he finally on the fifth time said, Susanna, please tell me why you won't take this job. I said, Doug, you're going to fire me. That's why I'm not taking the job. I love Elliot. I want to stay here. And you're going to fire me. So I'm not stupid. I'm not taking the job. He said, I'm not going to fire you. I said, oh, yes, you will. <laughs> and why did you think he was going to fire you? He's going to fire me because I had zero knowledge, no studies, no background, zero knowledge of public affairs and marketing. So I thought he was crazy. And he said, you are the best marketer we have. And trust me, you can do this job. So he won. (laughs) I took the job. And I said, you know, be gentle with me till I figure this out. Because I'm going to learn this on the job. And I'm going to do the best I can. But I'm warning you, I really don't know this area. And, of course, I quickly rolled up my sleeves and started to learn as fast as I could. Okay. So you had the dual-headed job until, was it 2006, I think? <laughs> yeah. And, and at that point, you, then you, you left your responsibilities with the foundation and just focused on your current role, which is public affairs and marketing. Uh, what made that necessary? Why did you stop So with the foundation, I that is? was now, at this point in my life, I'm a mom. I have both roles, and I was back to finding myself at the kitchen table at two in the morning, writing articles and doing all my public affairs and marketing work, basically in the middle of the night. And during the day, trying to get out, and and when you're fundraising, you have to be with people. You can't be in your office. So if you're going into fundraising, you want to be in an office, you're in the wrong profession. (laughs) You have to be out, you have to be social, you have to be with people. So I finally sat Doug down and said, I really can't do both. They, the organization's getting bigger and bigger. The foundation was expanding. You really need to cultivate those relationships. I can't do both and do them both w- as well as you want me to. So I think you should select. And he said, okay. He said, I pick marketing. He said, I told you you'd be the best 
person for us in public affairs and marketing, and I'm going to put you there because we can find somebody else to take. Where we were in the foundation was in a great place. We had built, you know, ourselves to a really steady state. And I agreed with him that there probably is somebody else who works in philanthropy that is more expert than me who could come in and advance Elliot even further. And that has happened, which is exciting. So what do you do as the <laughs> Vice President of Public Affairs and Marketing? That's so funny. Um, What's in a day in the life of Susanna? Oh, well, the nice, like? the, let's see, the nice and the exciting thing is whatever I plan for the day is typically not what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Healthcare is a moving target and things happen that are very unexpected. The media is a big part of my life and my day. So no matter what I plan, if the media calls me, I'm very responsive and I think that people should be because the media are trying to do their job. So as much as we are busy in healthcare and we're taking care of patients, things happen with either a newsworthy accident, let's say, or someone of interest is ill, of course the media is going to call and they're going to want to know how people are doing, what they call patient condition, or they want experts, your doctors, to talk to them about what does it mean um, when the new suggestion is that mammograms don't have to be given at age 40, that mammograms shouldn't take place until women are 50. How do your doctors feel about that? It's controversial. Well, we, we might want to weigh in on that. You might want to find a doctor who would be willing to talk, and that means stop what you're doing, find the doctor. Just so you know, the media doesn't usually wait. They, their deadlines are very short. So it should, completely changes your day. So my, I, you know, I have a schedule meetings and different things that I'm going to be doing. And then I always, in the back of my mind, know you got to be nimble, got to be ready to drop everything, and it'll all be waiting for you when you come back. <laughs> so you're the organization's primary point of contact for, for media relations. Then. Yes. So it, it, what, Elliot, just so you know, we only have two people in our department. Oh, okay. An enormous so, organization. So there's you and one other myself person. Myself and, okay. and one other person. Correct. Okay. All right. How do you manage your relationship relationships with the press and are there differences between how you interact with reporters from different kinds of media? Elliot's relationship with the media when I took the role was not good and both Doug and I knew that we had to improve the relationship with the union leader, WMUR, you know the major outlets that if you really think about it will help you in the end because there is going to be a day that there's a crisis that you actually need them to help you get the word out to the community about something taking place. So we set ourselves on that path and showed as much respect as we could to reporters that were calling on us to try to offer that expertise when they needed it. Now, you know, years later, I have a relationship with a lot of these people and they're, they're good people. They're nice people. As I said before, they're doing their jobs. I don't treat them differently. Unless, and I have done this, they break the rules. So, for instance, the rules are, if you want to get an interview or you want information about a patient, you call me or you page me. I will respond to you, or email, I guess. But the point being, you contact me. And I will work. I will stop what I'm doing. I will work on it. And I will let you know if we can help you, if we can't help you, why we can't help you, I will get you a statement, I will get someone on camera, whatever. 
I have had a situation where I have gone up to a patient room to talk to them on behalf of one of the major news outlets that called me to ask, you know, would you like to be interviewed by a reporter? When I got in the room to talk to that patient, there was a reporter in the room from another outlet, not wearing their credentials, so unidentified, in the patient's room and hadn't called me. So you didn't show me respect. You're not respecting the patient and the family. You're violating the rules. And I walked him out immediately. And I had security make sure he was leaving. Now, I still work with him to this day, but it's totally inappropriate. And it's not, you know, that changes the relationship. And it, it breaches that trust that you have to have to really get through some of these things together. So, I, you know, I, I work really hard for them and I think they for all of us, but I am more than willing to draw a line if you're not gonna play by the rules. How has social media changed your interaction with the press? I mean, so you kind of came in just as social media was really taking off. So we were a leader in getting out on Facebook and I, I know that I was asked by the New Hampshire Hospital Association to speak to my colleagues at, early on about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And, and where we, the big concern is losing control. So I hired experts. So there are firms out there, obviously, that they have many clients and they're posting all day. And we didn't do it on our own. We did get the expertise of a firm that works in that land of social media who could help us with making sure our posts were professional. But we looked at why we would be even on social media. And we decided that this was going to be another avenue for education and information for the public. It was not going to be a place where the public can post whatever they wanted. So if you don't like the fact that you got a bill, for instance, that doesn't make people happy. So for some reason, they think they can have health care with no bill. But anyway... But, you know, if you want to write on our Facebook post, our Facebook page about your bill and your frustration with that, I'm going to take it down and I'm going to block you because that's not the purpose for our, our, so just having some set of parameters around why we're doing it helps you have control and maintain control. And we wrote a policy internally so that our staff understood what they can and can't do because they're ambassadors of the health system. So they're part of our image, our brand, and on your individual page, if you are disparaging Elliot, you're representing Elliot, and we have a problem with that. Now, I get that people have First Amendment rights, and they can, they're free to speak to a point, because if you are now looking like you're speaking on behalf of Elliot as a representative, and we haven't asked you to do that for us, um, that's where you can get in some trouble. Do you run into those kinds of situations? Oh, yes. <laughs> but I think people, it's just, I think it's been a learning curve. Unfortunately, uh -huh. you know, you have those situations where people, I think, don't mean to do something that's harmful to the organization, but they do, and they don't quite understand the rules. They'll do a course correction if you point it out. If they won't do a course correction, you have a little bit of a different issue. So you mentioned the rules working with reporters. Are there rules of public affairs that you try to follow? Rules of public affairs. Or guidelines that you kind of follow? I guess it depends on how you define public affairs. 
Because I'm not sure how you're defining it in your mind. Well, why don't you define it? Because you're the vice president of public affairs. (laughs) You tell me. I mean, for me, public affairs is everything visible. Okay. So, you know, and again, I don't have a background in this, so I don't know what the textbook definition of public affairs is. But anything that reflects Elliot is my business. And it should be. So does that answer your question? Well, yeah. So what do you, what, how do you go about trying to nurture? So my next question was, how do you go about trying to nurture the brand? And what is a brand? And what's Elliot's brand? And how do you try to develop that? I think Elliot's doing a good job of nurturing the brand in a couple of different ways. And the first and foremost for me is starting with people. So I go to new hire orientation and do a welcome. So 50 people in a room who are just bright and shiny and about to start their career at Elliott, which is exciting. I really, truly mean that. And they get their badge. And I do a brief PowerPoint presentation. But part of what I'm telling them is you just got invited into a really special family. And a family where we hold a place of trust in this community. The community looks to us for their health care needs. They're scared, they're frustrated, they're sick, they want to be well, they want to be inspired. There's a lot going on. And you are part of the family and the team that will allow that fabulous experience or not. And here's what's not acceptable, not <laughs> performing in a way that helps people, that is caring, that is compassionate, that is thoughtful, and that reflects well on us as an organization. And I tell them, I take my badge off and I hold it up. I said, not everyone gets one of these. And when you do, you are now an ambassador of this health system. And I promise you, you will have a fabulous career here if you remember that today. That's what I want you to take away. I'm gonna tell you something else. If you don't, and you're not a good ambassador, we take this away from you (laughs) and you will have to go find a career elsewhere. And the grass is not greener. So really care about this and be a good ambassador. And I think starting with people is the most critical thing. Uh, Outside of that, nurturing our brand, we do in a number of different ways. Part of it is in terms of our strategy and what we set for goals as an organization, what we want to do for the community. Part of it has to do with the work that I do that's visible in what you see and what you read. So when you get a newsletter in your home that comes from the public affairs and marketing department, is it useful to you? Is it good information? Do you enjoy the articles? Are you finding the programs and classes that you want to keep you healthy and well? You know, did you enjoy having a, I don't know, a recipe at, you know, a new recipe for your grill, <laughs> so, or that kind of thing. Right. So it's, you know, it's everything, but I think we nurture the brand in, in, you know, endless ways. So is there a difference between public affairs and marketing in your mind, or is it all kind of one continuum? I, no, I think there, I guess the difference in my mind in marketing is the work I'm doing to create top of mind awareness in the community. Okay. So I want people to think Elliot when they think healthcare. So when we're marketing, we're trying to saturate the market with either a name, a service, or an attribute like trust in our doctors 
that draws the public to us to choose us for healthcare. I mean, that's that's what it's all about in the end. Are you voting or not with your feet? And we'll know by the numbers. What's the difference between internal and external communication? And why do you need internal communication? So we've kind of been talking about, you were saying about your newsletter and some other kind of intentional stuff. What about internal communication? What is that? Internal communication is absolutely critical in an organization, and probably in any organization, but in our organization, because we're so big, we talk a lot about communication internally. And it's basically, it starts with the audience. What's the difference between your audience? So internally, you're talking to your doctors, your nurses, your staff. You're talking to the people who are wearing that badge that I talked about earlier, who are or are not going to make patient experience excellent, who are or are not going to take care of each other. Um, and we communicate in many different ways. So a, a lot of it is email communication. We do open forums where we stand in front of our staff and our doctors and have a dialogue about what's going on. Um, we do celebrations and events. We have internal newsletters. I mean, the reason why we round physically, I'll go to departments and say, hi, I'm Susanna. Tell me what you do. Are you happy? What can I do to help you? You know, tell me more about what makes you uh, feel like you're supporting the strategic plan of Elliot. Sometimes they know, sometimes they don't. Do you even understand the strategic plan? Can I help you understand it? Um, how are we doing financially? You know, when you get into the department and they get excited to show you what they do all day, typically they are even more jazzed to say, here's how we're advancing the overall mission of the organization, which is so exciting. But the, all of that communication really matters because it, it makes you a cohesive group of people. It, and we're so spread out across southern New Hampshire. So it's not easy. Um, I don't think we're perfect at it, but we do try very hard. Uh, are there important ways that communication strategy has evolved over the 14 years, 13 years you've been doing this role now? Yeah, I think, I think the most important way it's evolved is getting back to face-to-face communication. Okay. There are so many ways to communicate that do not put you face-to-face with other people that you lose the personal connection, the relationships, and at the end of the day, we all want to feel like we are cared for somewhat by our leaders, our mentors, each other. Um, our internal survey tells us that our staff actually really loves working together. They really enjoy each other. And you see that when you go out and round in the departments, but you're face to face. So we have evolved now to a place where the open forums where we have that dialogue and the um, rounding by senior leaders is critical to our communication and I think to sort of the overall feeling and culture of the organization. But that direct communication is probably the best thing that we've gotten back to. You mentioned rounding. Mm-hmm. Is that a part of the, your strategy? Is, is that something that you promote and try to push your leaders to do? Or is it something that they're doing as part of a different aspect of the strategy? It is a, it is a strategy by the senior leaders. We all agree 
and nobody has to push each other. We, we agreed as a group that we will get out and round. So we block our calendars and set aside weeks to go out, leave our offices, and know that each of us were all out somewhere in the health system rounding. So this month, I have a ton of rounding. I, I just looked at it. I, I don't know. I must be hitting at least 15, 16 departments. And you just go one after the other after the other. But it's, it's a little exhausting, but it's so exciting. And you realize that it's time well spent at the end of the day. Get a lot of emails thanking us for the time and, and for the, you know, people meet me and they go, Oh my God, you're, you're the person who sends us the newsletter. Well, I get your emails all the time when you're trying to keep us up to date on what's going on with affiliation or something like that, you know, and they put a face to the name that they're getting all this other communication electronically. Now they get to know me as yeah. a person and yeah. I get to know them and it's just so much better. So rounding is something that we are very committed to as a senior team and it's, definitely having a positive impact. What do you do with that information? So you go out, you round. Is there something that you follow up afterwards with that as a group, as a leadership team? Or Yes. We sit, we, we do spend some time working on sort of things we've learned, issues that are popping up in various areas that seem to be a trend. We are not there to resolve human resource issues. Those do come up. And you just have to redirect people. I mean, I'm not going to be able to change your benefits while I'm standing in your department. Um, and that's not why I'm there. So we just redirect them on how to get help with something they may not understand. But yeah, as a senior leadership team, we do talk about what we're learning, what we're seeing, how the, you know, the pulse of the organization, what we think is needed to adjust culture or that kind of thing. So we take it seriously, but we're not, we're not doing it so that we come back and have a list of, 65 things we now have to fix, like that Sue has a broken chair and, you know, this person needs a new piece of equipment. It's, it's not that. It's, it's more relationship and culture setting. So you've talked about culture a, a couple of times. What is your role as the public affairs marketing person with respect to kind of nurturing the culture at Elliot? And, and what is organizational culture and why is it important? I actually don't think it's my responsibility. Okay. I think it's our responsibility. I think every member of the organization has some responsibility for the culture. I know that at the senior leadership table and from the board, you know, we want to set a culture of our mission, inspiring wellness, healing our patients, and serving with compassion in every interaction. And that service piece is big, and that service piece is internal and external. So how we serve each other and how we serve the community and patients and families that come to us. And we take it seriously. I think that, you know, in healthcare, you want to do the best you can by people every day. And oftentimes, that empathy can fall aside, fall to the wayside because you have things going on in your own life. But we try to, you know, instill in people that, we're here because we care about other people and we want to inspire, heal, and serve. So, you know, as I walk around, if I'm grumpy and I walk by three people and I don't ever say hello, I'm setting the culture. But so are they if they walk by me and have their head down and don't say hello. So we have service excellence training. We have people working hard to make sure that 
the environment in which we're working is respectful, somewhat welcoming, joyous, not off the wall, but because obviously it's healthcare, but friendly at the end of the day and transparent and communicative, all of those things that ultimately result in staff engagement and satisfaction and positive patient experience. What mistakes do healthcare executives make when dealing with the press? <laughs> well, speculation, guessing. <laughs> you know, I always tell people, you can't quote silence. Okay. <laughs> so stop talking if you don't know the answer. <laughs> don't speculate, don't guess. And Wait, tell me your question again. So, well, what kind of mistakes do, do leaders, do healthcare leaders make? when dealing with the press? Man, I, I think I, I think what I said earlier is is, yeah, okay. is correct. So let, don't let speculate. Me, yeah, let me say it differently. Okay. I think the biggest mistake you can make when dealing with the press is not being factual. Okay. So I always, when the press calls, especially if it's a controversial issue, you typically know those calls are coming. You'll know that you probably have already started working on a strategy to communicate externally if there is an issue internally that you are aware of that is likely to be newsworthy. What you have to do and what you have to media train the spokesperson to do is understand, know the facts and stick with the facts. Because if you don't, you will head down a road that is very tricky and really may end up being bad for you in your career. It can be a career changer and very bad for the organization, which is also typically a career changer. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to first gather facts and help people understand what are the facts we're dealing with, stick with those, and I always media train people before they talk to the press because I don't want them guessing, I don't want them speculating, and as I say all the time, shut your mouth and be quiet because they can't quote silence. That sounds like a lawyerly kind of answer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is. <laughs> well, let me ask you that. Um, how did how did your previous work as an attorney, uh, and then also your director of development work, prepare you for the role you're in now? I think I use my skills every day, in everything I do. I mean, from simple things like writing memos. That's intimidating for some people. Writing is not intimidating for me because when you're a lawyer, you have to write. You have to write your pleadings. You have to write your memos of law. So communication is very important and words are important and the use of words. I think that being able to stand on your feet, represent yourself or another person or an organization is something that I am well equipped to do because of the practice of law. I, I think I use the skills every day. I mean, I, I would, if, if people are listening to this, trying to figure out what career to go into, you're never ever making a bad decision by becoming a lawyer. A lot of lawyers do not practice law. They do a million other things. But it's just incredible skills that you learn in law school. You're a vice president. And what does that mean? And what responsibilities does that imply beyond your formal title of, of public affairs and marketing? So as a vice president and a leader of Elliott Health System, we have responsibility for 
everything we talked about from culture, but also to the strategic plan, uh, the direction of the organization, how are we doing financially, are we taking care of our people, are we planning for the future? In other words, if you have a practice of physicians, for example, and three are about to retire and there's only five, you better have a plan for how you're going to fill those positions and, you know, continue to serve the patients. So, I mean, our, as leaders of the organization, as vice presidents, I'm not, I don't consider myself just public affairs and marketing. I consider myself a vice president of a huge not-for-profit organization upon which the community relies and 4,000 staff members rely for their career, for their paying of their mortgage, taking care of their kids. I mean, there's a lot of responsibility with it, but I, I love that part. I love being one of those nurturers from the position of a vice president. You mentioned strategy. Where are you involved? How are you involved in the creation and development of the strategic? All the vice presidents are involved, and we work with the board directly on strategic planning and looking at sort of what are the current goals. We set our strategic plan as a, as a three-year plan. You'd love to have like a three- to five-year plan. And my involvement after strategy is set and, in, you know, the, all the meetings that take place to get to the strategic plan, which is like brainstorming sessions and understanding data and some presentations. After that, it's about participating in what we call, we have six strategic pillars. So I participate on pillar teams, and we also help push the information down to directors, managers, and the staff so that they get an understanding of what the strategy is and how they individually play a part in each of our strategic pillars. So you've been working as the Vice President of Public Affairs and Marketing since 2004. How has your role evolved over time, over that time, and what have you learned? My role has evolved mainly because I've become more knowledgeable in what I'm doing, more confident in what I'm doing, and we've had a change in leadership. So as a 16-year CEO leaves the organization and a new one comes in, my role shifts to not just being one of the vice presidents who report to that CEO and help carry out the mission of the organization. Now I become a teacher. So the new CEO comes in, he doesn't know us, and someone has to take him by the arm, which is each of the vice presidents in their own way become the teachers, as well as the staff, to be honest. I mean, everybody became a teacher, but all of us have had to do some evolving because the organization is going through change. Our CEO came and went in two years, so we're in a different transition again now where we're all linking arms tightly because we don't have a CEO at Elliott at this moment, and the entire staff, all the physicians, are looking to the vice presidents to steady the ship, make sure everything is going well, and that we really have our eyes on all of the operations, making sure we're we're in a good place. Elliot's in a wonderful place. The truth is we have such a good leadership team. The vice presidents are so strong in what their, their knowledge base and what they're doing and their skill and expertise that we are in a good place and the board feels comfortable 
while they go out for a national search, which will take months and months and months to get the next CEO. So it'll, it'll continue to evolve. But I think with anything, you know, day to day, I, I've gotten better at, at what I'm doing just because I know the ropes now where I didn't know how to place media before. I can call WMUR, call my account executive at the union leader. I know how to negotiate, how to negotiate my rates and get my placement and, and have a run and so forth. So it's, it, it's evolved, but partly based on just that knowledge base that has increased over time. I want to ask just a couple of questions about leadership. So what would you say is your leadership philosophy? Uh, my leadership philosophy is definitely there is nothing that I'd ask you to do that I won't do myself. And I am a, an extremely hard worker. I hold myself to a high standard, and I feel like I instill in other people the ability to do the same where they might not believe in themselves quite as much as they should, but I think if they apply themselves a little bit more and really roll up their sleeves, they're going to find that that they can do just about anything they set their mind to. And I think I'm an example of that. I mean, I still kind of laugh. I giggle that, like, do I really have any business in public affairs and marketing? But here I am. And you know what? I'm not half bad at it. I may not be the best, but I'm not half bad. And it's because I really try my heart out all the time. So I think that people respect and like me as a leader because I get my hands dirty right there next to them. Um, I am real. I'm a mother. I tell people who are have families, you're a mother first. You're a father first. So go home. Take care of your sick child. You don't have to apologize or beg me. That that's part of life. And there's probably a more important more important part of life than being here. So, um, sort of all of those things are my style. Okay. <laughs> Being just nice and a good person to people. <laughs> yeah. Well, so in your role, you've both been a, you've been a vice president for a long time, but you also in your role as a, as a person in charge of communications, you get a chance to see a lot of leaders operating. Mm -hmm. What makes a good leader? I think a good leader is someone who is willing to share knowledge and expertise mentor other people up, recognize and congratulate and give the accolades deserved to the people who were actually responsible for things that make you look good. I think the biggest pitfall that I see in leaders who don't make it in my world, vice presidents of healthcare systems, directors, others, there's power that comes with it. And power can be a very dangerous thing for some people because they'll misuse it. And I saw it as a lawyer, and I sued people for it, uh -huh. and Interesting. I okay. see it now. And if you misuse power, you're not going down a positive road. It will bite you. It'll get you sooner or later. And I typically identify it pretty quickly, and I watch it. And I have even asked people to course correct. Some people do, and some people don't. But their fate is theirs, and, and when they fail, they fail because of themselves, not because of anybody else. You've held positions both of direct leadership as well as positions of influence without necessarily direct authority. So you're just talking about mm -hmm. power. Yeah. What's important about the difference? And how do you lead without necessarily having the authority? I don't, you know, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I can't, 
I can't call a group of doctors together, make a decision, and then go to the chief medical officer and say, well, we had this meeting, we made this decision. That would be wrong. But what I can do is sit with a group of doctors and say, what's on your mind? What's happening? How do you feel? Let me take this back to the chief medical officer who couldn't be here today and share with him this session and see what we can come up with. You know, you have the authority to gather information. You have the authority to understand what's going on, good and bad. And if you're a good leader, you know how to take information and use it for the greater good and find ways to get to the right people, inform them in a non-threatening way that helps lead to things that have to happen, either a decision or a change or an improvement or something like that. I guess that's how I see it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So last question, what advice would you give early careerists who are thinking about that a career maybe in marketing and communications sounds interesting? What should they, you know, if they were saying, I'd like to do what Susanna does, what should they be studying? What should they, what experiences should they seek out? What guidance would you give them? Well, if they're interested in it, then pursue it. So certainly if there are college courses that will help them advance their knowledge, and but most of all, I'm back to experience it. So if you can get in the door somewhere to act as an intern or spend even a day so you walk in the shoes of someone like myself, you're going to see firsthand and experience it and perhaps either love it or decide this isn't for me. And so when I give the example way back at the beginning of this interview of me going and sitting in a courtroom when I was in law school, I was, I guess, in a way, just trying to see if I like it. And I loved it. So I went back day after day after day after day. And, you know, it's it's that kind of uh, self-motivation to experience things that I think really will help determine whether you are in the right field or not. But find the courses, study hard, get as much knowledge as you can. Because the way I did this, learning on the job, definitely challenging. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you're doing very well. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been great. And thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.